0: Discussion about what we believe. Uh, I did want to make. Okay, ah, sorry, I was being uh, I did want to make note that next weekend is our graduation Sunday. So our high school graduates, uh, graduates are graduating on a Saturday, uh, and so this year we actually have two high school graduates, uh, one college graduate, and then several eighth graders who are also moving up to join us in high school. And so we want to use this time every year because it's a significant moment uh, to capture that moment and use it to point uh, to point all of us, but especially our students who are transitioning and moving up towards Jesus, right? And we see that throughout the Bible that, that God often calls his people to take special moments throughout the year to, to continually point them back to their relationship with We want to do that next week. So I hope you all join us next week as we celebrate our graduates. And I hope, um, by the way, if if you guys are wanting to get gifts for graduates as well and want the list right now, uh, just email me, and I'll send you our list of those who are graduating if you want to get them a card or something to celebrate and honor them. Just let me know this week, and I can get that to you. Um, But we are moving on to our time where I want to invite up all of you out there who are in uh, fifth grade or younger can come up here, and I want to talk with you a little bit about what we believe, all right? And then afterwards, the thir- third graders and younger can join me in children's church. So, come on up here. So, for the last two weeks, we've been talking about together what went wrong. So, when God created in the very beginning, everything He created—what do you think? Was it was it good or was it bad when He created everything? It was good. Yeah. But then, that's, so if you guys would join the younger kids too, scoot over, that'd be great. I know there's a separation of age, but there doesn't have to be that big a separation. Come on. All right. All right. So it was good, but then something happened, right? And so the very first human beings, Adam and Eve, it said that um, they were given a choice to obey God or disobey God. So they had a fruit in the garden. God said, trust me, do not eat from this fruit, right? And the fruit was the knowledge of good and evil. So they could have chosen to stay with God, and he would have taught them that, or they can take it upon themselves. And what happened? Do you think they ate the fruit? What do you think? Yeah, they ate the fruit, and that began all the problem. And so uh, the last two weeks, we've been talking about the problem. So we said the first problem is that when When human beings separated themselves from the God of life, they brought in death and disease and all that comes with that, right? And then the other problem is broken relationships. So we broke our relationship with God, and since he's the God of love, all of our human relationships were broken as well. But this week, I want to talk about not the problems, but the solutions. And I bet you guys might know the answer. What do you think the solution to all those problems are? Do you want to tell us again what do you think the solution is? That's true they did eat the fruit. And what how do you think God intends to solve that problem? What do you think? Do you think you know the answer? No. Ooh, that's you know the story. You know the story. What do you what do you think? What do you think the solution is? Oh no. They showed the answer. <laughs> they showed the answer. All right, so I have a bit of a longer answer up there, but this is this is everyone's favorite Sunday school answer. So if I ask you, what is the solution? You say Jesus. Okay, so what is the solution? Oh. All right, let's try this again. If the solution is Jesus, when I ask you, what is the solution? Jesus. Jesus. That's right. So uh, I hope, families, you take this table talk home and talk about it a little more in depth. But Jesus solves this problem because he became a human being. He took the punishment for our sin, even though he lived the sinless life by dying for our sins and being rose again. So he solved the first problem of death because when he rose again, he defeated death for all who would follow him. All who follow him can have eternal life. And he defeated the second problem because through his death, he restored human relationships with God. So uh, I'm going to leave it for that today. Thank you for joining us up here. Uh, third graders, if you would join me in Sunday school and fourth and fifth graders, you can. Oh, um, sorry. One more thing I want to announce. So w- one more thing since it's graduation Sunday. This Sunday night, all the eighth graders going into their freshman year are invited to join us uh, for our high school group tonight starting at 630. And on Wednesday, all fifth graders moving into sixth grade are invited to join us starting at six o'clock this Wednesday, okay? That's going to start this week, so I hope to see you all there. Uh, and you guys can grab, see again, and if you guys would follow me out to children's. Sorry, I forgot. Uh, we have a guest speaker today who wants to speak about Gideon, if you would come on up.
1: For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. David Bray can testify to the power of the gospel that he found written in the word of God. Through his grandfather's involvement with the crime syndicate in New York, he got involved in a life of crime, drugs, and drinking. In his words, I had a wild life, and I was a slave to Satan. In 1991, he was ordered to kill a man. A murderer, he landed in Reichs Island Prison. In his cell, he noticed a Gideon New Testament on top of a locker. And he picked it up and he started to read it. And that night, he read verses on uh, forgiveness and salvation. And he asked God, Can you really forgive a murderer? Well, the next day, they had some Christian meeting, and uh, the speaker said, I am here to tell you that God forgives murderers because I was one, and he forgave me. So David began to read the Bible earnestly, and in a short time, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. Ten years later, he got released from prison. And then he became a chaplain in the State of New York prison system. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Gideon's and their wives and auxiliary auxiliary, the wives are the auxiliary, the Gideon Auxiliary, they personally witness and distribute God's word to prisoners, police, fire, medical, and military personnel students in the fifth grade and above, and to those with whom they have contact on a daily basis. We also place scriptures in key locations, including, as you may know, hotels and motels, also hospitals, convalescent homes, medical offices, domestic violence shelters, and of course, prisons and jails. The Gideon's International was established in 1899 And it's an association of Christian professional and businessmen who are members in good standing with the local church. They associate together for service and to strengthen their own Christian walk. There are over 100 Gideons in the greater Peoria area here. And worldwide, we're 161,000 strong with 95,000 auxiliary ladies. And we're organizing the 12,000 small groups in local areas called camps, and they're spread across 200 countries in the world. So it's quite a diverse um, mission force, if you will. Faria was a high school girl visiting from out of town when the Gideons distributed scriptures in, her, in the small school in Albania. After returning home, she read her New Testament every night. And she eventually received Christ as her Savior. Excited about her faith, she shared it with her four close friends. And these uh, four girls uh, were interested, but since there was no other Bibles in the town because it was primarily a Muslim village, she took her scripture And she separated out and tore apart the four Gospels. Gave one Gospel to each of the four girls. And the girls traded the Gospels around. And they eventually came to know the Lord as their Savior. So from one Gospel in a small village in Albania, you have five girls that came to know the Lord. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. COVID has changed uh, all of our lives. And it's also um, impacted the Gideons. If I were giving this report in June of 2019, I would tell you that the Gideons and Auxiliary had distributed 68 million scriptures that year around the world. Well, as I stand before you today, just not far from June. I would estimate that the number of scriptures that have been distributed by the Gideons around the world this year is 25 million. Not a small number, but a 63% decrease in what we've had before. With a lot of the schools closed and hospitals off limits and a lot of things going on, as you can understand, it impacts our avenues of distribution. Um, To partner with the Gideons, we would ask that you pray that the avenues of Scripture placement would be open again. We'd also ask that you pray that the over 2 billion copies of God's Word that have been distributed since our inception would still be read. People would pick them up, read them, and the Lord would draw them to himself. If the Lord... uh, Lead you to find help us financially today. I want to thank you. There is a plate in the back there that you can uh, leave an offering if you're so inclined. Um, also ask that you might visit us on our website, Gideons.org. If you click on Get Involved, you can learn about becoming a friend of the Gideons. That's also uh, described a little bit in this Your bulletin is inside this thing. It's out there on the table. I didn't get one on the way in. But um, take this with you. It also talks about the Friends of the Gideons and uh, how you can get ministry updates. And uh, you can also get some helps that might help you with your own prayer life and spiritual walk. And uh, I'd also mention that if you would click on Give Now when you get to that website, you could learn about uh, Gideon cards, a way to give encouragement and um, also memorialize someone um, and it's a good good way to do that. It also supports the Gideons and uh, that's also described in here. I'd also like to mention the Bible app, the Gideon Bible app. Uh, There's some cards back there on the table by the plate um, just as a reminder. But uh, you can go to your Google store or your Apple store, and uh, it's a free app. And there are 1,500 languages the scriptures are translated into on that app. So you can uh, use that to witness to almost anybody in the world. Um, As opportunities, uh, most of key placement locations are temporarily interrupted us Gideons have been focusing on improving our personal witnessing skills and reaching out with the gospel to those with whom we interact on a daily basis. And um, in January of this year, Keith, a Gideon from Texas, was on a phone with Natasha, who was a service rep. And COVID-19 was mentioned and Natasha indicated that she was very fearful. She had two little ones at home, and she was having difficulty discerning how to live safely and how to live normally with them. She says, I'm trying my best. It doesn't work. So Keith explained the hope of the gospel to her, that there was only one place to find hope, and it was in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Keith told Natasha that she could live and walk with Jesus if she wanted. <laughs> she responded, it isn't just something I want, it's something I need. And right then and there on that phone conversation, Natasha then prayed to receive Christ as her Savior. The Gospels, the power of God for salvation to all who believe. I want to thank uh, you for listening well, and for Pastor Horn for inviting me to speak this morning. And uh, Chris and Josh being such good hosts. I particularly want to thank you all for the involvement of this church with the Gideons over many years helping us to put scriptures in the hands of people around the world. So thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you, Doug. The ministry of sending the Bible and getting it into the people's hands is something that we are heavily involved in. So I would encourage you guys that uh, if the Spirit leads you this morning, please donate to the ministry. It uh, it is a God-glorifying one, right? And we want to support it as best as we can, okay? So, good morning. (laughs) Again, again. Um, As I was preparing this, uh, this week... I, um, I got thinking about uh, something that happened to me when I was younger. Um, when I was around, oh, I don't know, maybe 12 years old, uh, my mother took uh, my sister and I and some friends on a, a fishing trip down in Cape May, New Jersey. And um, <clears throat> well, we went there to go blue fishing. And uh, blue fishing is a lot of fun. If you've never done it, I would encourage you to do it but it wasn't really like any other fishing experience that I had had up to that point, right? It was was actually deep sea fishing at nighttime about 40 miles off the coast of New Jersey. And uh, as you can imagine, as a 12-year-old, I was pretty excited about that. But I remember distinctly asking myself a really important question. How does the captain know how to get to where he needs to go in the middle of the night, right? If you know anything about boating, you know how essential it is to stay on course, right? If you get just a few degrees off course, if you miscalculate in the smallest of ways, you can wind up way far away from, what you, from where you intended to go, right? The slightest deviation if left uncorrected can result in great devastation. And this morning, I think we see in the book of Nehemiah is a nation that has gotten off course and a leader that makes the necessary corrections to get them pointed back in the right direction. So if, you, if you're able, please stand with me. We're going to read out of the book of Nehemiah this morning. We're going to be in chapter 13. Chapter 13 of Nehemiah. The Bible says, on the day they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people, or on that day they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people, and it was, round, it was found written that no Ammonite or a Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign Descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil of Eliashib and Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber on the courts of the house of God. And I was angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of our house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachor, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service." In those days, I saw in Judah people treading winepresses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they were brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles. Of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, also, I saw the Jews who married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters from your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? I mean, among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and treacherous, and, treacherous and, tre, and treacherously against God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites each in his work and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your continued grace this morning, Lord God, as we gather to worship you in spirit and truth. And right now, Father, so many distractions that are pulling our minds away from this most important time as we hear from you, O God. I ask you, Lord God, that by your spirit, that by your spirit, Lord, you would focus our attention on what you have to say in your word this morning. Father, please come, Lord God, and draw near to us and lead us and teach us, I pray. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. I suspect many of you have that one person you admire in your life because of their godliness and commitment to walking in obedience to Jesus. I have a few of those in my life, and uh, I used to call them super Christians uh, a few years ago, and and they just seem to have it all together all the time, patiently making all the right decisions and walking so faithfully with the Lord. Right? I never got a chance to see them slip and slide and stumble as they walked along with the Lord that led to what I saw in front of me on those days. Right? And that's pretty common for us. Right? We never see how, how that mature, obedient follower of Christ came to be. And I think that's how Nehemiah 13 starts us off this morning. Right? In the first few verses of chapter 13, we read what we read is the result of renewing revival. First, and what happens when the ship is set on the right course, right? The people of Israel read from the book of the law, revealing their sin, and they respond in obedience to what God commanded them to do in his word. And then in the next 28 verses, it shows how that disobedience, or how that obedience, excuse me, came to be, right? I love seeing the end in the beginning, It's good to have those mature brothers and sisters around us because it gives us motivation knowing that God is moving and shaping us into what he wants us to be. But before we reach the level he is leading us to, we in fact often stumble and slip and slide and and get off course and discouraged along the way. So the first step in the process of renewing our relationship, renewing our revival, riding the ship, And pointing ourselves in the right direction is to passionately reject sin. In the last few chapters of Nehemiah, revival has really taken hold in Jerusalem, and a recommitment to God was made, and the nation of Israel was on track, and they were on a really good course. Pastor Joe preached a number of messages that show us when the right people are put in the right place, and the ship is moving in the right direction, we can kind of hand off the responsibility to those we believe can guide the ship rightly, take leave to let them do what they have been commissioned, what they've been called to do. And that's really what we see in verse 6. It tells us that Nehemiah left Jerusalem in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes' reign. That's about 12 years after God called him to the work of rebuilding the wall. And then after sort of an unknown amount of time, he comes back to Jerusalem. And we're not certain how long he was gone or even how long he stayed in Jerusalem. But when he got back, when he got back, what he saw was a mess that the leaders who were appointed to care for and moved Israel family forward um, uh, was an absolute mess. Uh, And they were actually doing the opposite of what he asked them to do right? It kind of reminds me of that old adage, right? Uh, when the cat is away, the mice will play. And, uh, and the mice were definitely playing in Jerusalem. It actually kind of reminds me also of the first time we had Finn babysit Sam and Lottie. Uh, he was around 12. There seems to be a lot of 12s this morning. Um, Christy and I wanted to go and get some Mexican food, right? It was only about a, maybe about a, a mile away from our house and and up to that point Finn had done a really good job of watching the kids for, you know, maybe 15 20 minutes as we went to Walmart, or went to the local grocery store or or, or somewhere at the gas station to get some food and um and uh, we had complete confidence in his ability to do, to babysit the kids. So before we left, we sat him down, reminded him of those important things and gave him the list of dos and don'ts. It, it was not a very long list. Um basically Uh, It was let the kids watch a movie on the iPad with you in the basement while you're playing on your PlayStation. Two simple rules. All you have to do, all you have to do is keep your eye on them and keep them close by. So off we went, had a wonderful time, a great mommy-daddy time, and a date time lasted about an hour. And when we walked in the door, what we found was not two little kids watching a movie and then playing in the PlayStation. There were pillows and cushions and blankets all over the floor, toys everywhere, Play-Doh all over the table and the carpet, and the three of them were running around like a bunch of wild chickens. Now, they were having a great time, but they were literally doing the opposite of what we told them to do. When the cat's away, the mice play. Now, I don't recall exactly how I responded, but I'm certain that my hair was on fire. That's only because I'm a work in progress. Um, and uh, I don't know that I explained. I'm fairly certain that we explained to Finn what went wrong. And I want to just say that I'm, I'm happy to report that he has turned out to be a wonderful babysitter to his brother and sister. And Finn is a, is, is a growing leader in our family. And, uh, and we, are, uh, we trust him completely to handle that work. He's doing, he's doing a fine job and growing into that role. But but I, I really want to tell you this story simply because I think that's what Nehemiah encounters in chapter 13. Right When he arrives back in Jerusalem, everything is out of control and they're doing the opposite of what they were told to do. Now for time's sake, we cannot explore this in every way. If it were up to me, I would probably preach Nehemiah 13 in three passages. So I'm just going to try and piece the puzzle and uh, together and and hope you follow along. So bear with me as we walk through it. Um, There are many layers of disobedience that we see in the text, but I'm just going to quickly walk through it all with you very quickly. So it starts out in verses four through seven. Nehemiah learns that Eliashib, the high priest, right, this is the leader of leaders, made the command decision to clean out one of the important storerooms that held the offerings that supported the temple workers and turned it into an apartment for his family member, Tobiah. Now, I know that you guys remember, Tobiah is, in fact, the enemy of God and his people and someone who has vehemently opposed the work of rebuilding and revival in Jerusalem. I mean, that's a big problem. And then it goes on to say in verse 10 that Eliashib never actually gave what he took out of the storeroom to those who worked in the temple and led worship. And that resulted in them having to go and work the fields. Essentially, Eliashib's sin directly resulted in the sin and disobedience of others. And of course, it gets worse before it gets better. I'm a Baptist. we got to start out with the bad. We read in verses 15 through 18... And also in verse 20 and 21, that the Sabbath day, that the Sabbath day, the holy day, was defiled because of all the work going on. Not just the temple workers and the Jews who lived in Jerusalem, but all the outsiders among them were doing business on the Lord's day in the city as well. Now if that were not enough, in verses 23 through 25 and 28, Nehemiah also learned that the Israelites had taken foreign wives and the result was the children in Jerusalem didn't even speak the language of Jerusalem any longer. But I think what takes the cake is the son of Eliashib, the high priest, the leader of all leaders, is married married to the daughter of Tobiah, the enemy of God. I mean, this mess makes my dinner date with my wife look like a day at the spa, right? So we shouldn't be at all surprised When we read back in verse 8, that Nehemiah was very angry when he came home, right? And it's important for us to remember how we respond to sin and disobedience says a lot about how much we love God and those we are walking with. Now, there are times, most times, when gentle correction is what's needed, and then there are times when we must passionately reject the sin that is causing the disobedience. And although it may seem harsh, Nehemiah does that very thing. And he starts with Chuck and Tobiah and all of his stuff out of the temple in verse 8. right? He then confronts those in leadership about the defilement of the Sabbath and the foreigners who are doing business in the city when they're not supposed to in verses 17 and 18 and 21. Next is the father's. Mothers, children who have been led astray in the last part of this chapter in verses 25 through 27. He doesn't leave them off the hook like so many do, but it says in verse 25 that he curses them and beats them and pulls out their hair. Nehemiah is snatching them up bald headed, is what Pastor Joe said earlier this week. He's chasing people out of town and out of the family, and that's what we see in verse 28. Nehemiah renews revival by first passionately rejecting the sin that caused the mess in the first place. But I want you to notice something that's really, really important. I want you to notice where Nehemiah starts his counterattack. He doesn't begin on the outside, but starts on the inside first. He goes to the temple first, the place where God dwells. When we get off track, friends, when we get off track, that's the place we need to look at first as well. Because renewing revival starts within, but by rejecting and ejecting the sin that has caused all the trouble in the first place. When sin takes hold in our lives, we have to attack the foundations that cause us to get sideways and off track. We have to be willing, have to be willing to take extreme action to get rid of it like Nehemiah does. We have to put the death, the deeds of the flesh, is what it says in Romans chapter eight. We have a responsibility to inspect our lives and be willing to reject the sin that is causing disobedience. Well, Nehemiah passionately does that. He rejects the sin at the foundational level by restoring the inside first. I now mean, I want you to know this morning that it's never too late to step back and change directions. It's never too late to kill a bad idea. No matter how far along you are, you can shift gears and make new decisions. If something in your life is causing you to get off course, it's never too late to chuck it out of the house like Nehemiah does. But it's going to start with you. If you don't reject the sin at the root level, those who rely on you and look up to you will most likely follow in your footsteps. The downstream effect on those you are leading will be extreme, just like it was for those in Nehemiah chapter 13. Levites, priests, parents, and children. Right? The family gets infected because the leaders have not been willing to right the ship. So when you passionately reject sin on the inside, praise be to God, you will likely start to see obedience on the outside. I got this dear friend of mine who's been walking with the Lord for a long time, but he struggled mightily with an addiction to pornography. He couldn't see his actions as the cause for all the trouble in his life, with his wife, and in his family. It wasn't until someone confronted him till a Nehemiah came along and showed him that the evil that he was engaged in was causing the adultery in his life. And when he saw it for what it was, the spirit of God broke his heart of stone and made it so soft for the truth that this brother now walks in obedience and completely free from his addiction. The family has been restored, and his marriage relationship is wonderful. What was once broken, God has completely restored. When you reject sin and continually walk in obedience to God's word, the Spirit of God will, in fact, do wonderful work in your life and in the lives of those you love. The more you surrender to the Spirit of God, the more you allow the word of God to to have its way with you, the more willing you will become to receive his correction. I want you to notice how Israel is so responsive to Nehemiah's correction in verse nine. Nehemiah orders the temple to be cleaned and purified, right? And in verse 10, the Bible tells us that they brought back everything that was in the temple, right? And and when you put that together, you start to see the word of God is spoken. The people are responding to the command and they're starting to walk obediently in the right direction. So much so that in verses 11 through 13, the nobles and all of the house of Judah respond in the same way by donating all that was needed. But it didn't stop there. They actually started serving in every area that they they were called to. But there's no resistance to the rejection of sin and the call to obedience in this chapter. Right When righteousness has its way, people start to obey. In verse 19 and 22, Nehemiah secures the city by stationing people to protect the Sabbath day. And they respond in obedience by repentance and a renewal of purity and right living. Although the text does not specifically show that the mothers, fathers, and children that neglected the heritage of Jerusalem and the Jews but it seems that they did submit because verse 3 starts us off with this wonderfully encouraging um, understanding that they separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent. And this just tells me that they obeyed Nehemiah's command and turned away from those relationships and the people outside of God's family that were leading them astray. I mean, Nehemiah is working his plan to renew revival By first rejecting sin on the inside, creating a desire for submission on the outside. But it doesn't end there. Once you get your life and those around you moving in the right direction, you need to put in some boundaries and make the necessary changes that help in preventing the same problems from happening again in the future. Nehemiah is well aware of what the world is like. So he puts the right people in the right locations to guard against those who, frankly, care less about purity and a life of worship. And I think what we need to learn from that is that we must be willing to evaluate our lives and set up a perimeter of defense that helps us protect, protect against those things as well. The truth is there are some relationships, dear ones, there are some relationships that we need to end Because they are not leading us to God, but in fact, away from God. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't have friends that are not Christians, friends that don't worship God. It's not to say that you shouldn't be engaged in activities outside the church. But I think what it is saying is the dynamics of those relationships and those activities will change as you prioritize your life and the God you love. And I think what we see so very clearly in Nehemiah 13, specifically verses 16, kind of through 21, Nehemiah is prioritizing the worship of God over other relationships and activities. Now, he doesn't tell the merchants, you're never allowed in here again. But those things are not allowed here on the Lord's day. He's saying, that's a day that's a day we keep holy to the Lord and worship him as the family of God. So the shops are closed and the focus is on being with the family of God. You gotta know that relationships that take you away from God, activities that keep you from God's family, they are not actually adding to your worship, but in fact taking away from it. Please, please, God, man, please continue those activities and have those wonderful experiences. But just have them on other days of the week. Because it pleases God and it benefits you to worship him together on the Lord's day. We need to put in the hard work, church, of evaluating where we go wrong and be willing to clean the house and right the ship And put in the necessary boundaries so we can get moving in the right direction. Amen? Now, it's not easy work. It's not easy work. But it's necessary. But the reward is wonderful. We don't reject the sin that causes the separation for nothing. We don't just faithfully walk in God's ways just because we should. We do these things because of the grace we have been given and the grace we continue to receive when we do. Here in Nehemiah 13, we see a motivation from Nehemiah, Nehemiah. And there's something driving his desire to rid the family from sin and to worship God rightly. In verses 14, kind of through 29, right there in the middle of this, of this chapter, as well as right at the end, Nehemiah. Um, cries out to God um, for him to remember his good work and faithful obedience to God. These are really important remember statements. And I want you to understand that there is an aspect of Nehemiah's prayers in these verses that relate to his fear of of, of the backsliding Israel and it being reflected on his leadership. I mean, the truth is, leaders should have a rightly associated fear for the work they do. Pastors, parents, Youth leaders, Sunday school servants should be well aware of what they are doing in service to God. It's important work that you will give and account for one day. So when I read these remember statements in chapter 13, it becomes really, really clear to me that Nehemiah is wanting and crying out for God's grace. And maybe he's acknowledging that he's failed some. Right? He's failed at some level in raising up the wrong leaders or, or, or leaving the work prematurely. But at the very least, he wants God to see the work that he has done as something good and faithful and glorifying to him. His desire is for God's great grace. And the good news is grace is not a one-time thing. It's the gift that God continues to give to those who reject sin. And continually walk in obedience to his word. Yeah, you will slip and slide. You will get off course, but grace will help you find your way back and get the ship pointed in the right direction again. Man, as I was working this out on Friday, I just kind of see this sort of puzzle uh, in my mind. Um, I said some pretty stupid things to my wife, right? The anxiety of of preaching and teaching and standing before God's children uh, had its way with me for a moment. But I righted the ship by confessing my sin to my wife and my children and asking them to forgive me. And I experienced and I received God's grace. What should motivate you to passionately reject sin and walk in obedience to your God is His grace. Simple question. Do you know God's grace today? Do you see your sin this morning? And are you willing to lay it down and turn to the God of great grace? He has provided a way, and it's as easy as A, B, C. You have to A, accept you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and B, believe that Jesus is the only Savior and God rose him from the dead and then see, call on his name for salvation, confessing him as Lord and you will know God's great grace. If you have already already done that, then you can turn to your God by passionately rejecting the sin in your life and walk in obedience to him and you will receive a fresh measure of God's grace today. It really is as easy as A, B, C. Church, when you confess and reject the sin that separates you from your God and your Savior, the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When you let the Spirit of God lead you in submission to the Word of God and reprioritize your worship of God, you will live by his grace. Not just once, dear friends, but over and over and over again. God is an ocean of grace, and he wants to renew revival in you, calling you to passionately reject sin on the inside and continually obey God's word, walking in holiness on the outside and experience his grace on every side. Nehemiah shows us this morning That in order for revival to be renewed, it starts with resolving the sin that's on the inside. Just as he cleans the temple and the house of the living God in Jerusalem, we need to continue the work of cleaning up our house, which is a temple of the living God. We need to call those we love to walk with us in faithful obedience because of God's grace we must be willing to put in place the necessary guardrails that help us in prioritizing our worship of God. And as we allow the Spirit of God to point us to the Word of God, with the help of the people of God, we will walk in joyful obedience to God. So before I I pray, I just want to just reemphasize two really important points. I really want to drive these home for you today. If you walk away here with nothing else, Please walk away with the reality that when your life is not going the way you want it to, start looking at what's happening on the inside. When your wife and your kids and your job are creating frustration in your life, don't be so quick to look at them as the reason for your failures, the reason for your frustrations. But ask the Lord to reveal in you What's causing the problem in your life? Now, I acknowledge the reality that there are circumstances that are out of our control, but most often, dear friends, the problem is in fact us. It's seldomly my wife. It's quite often my children. (laughs) I love you, Finn. Seriously, a lot. Okay, second... The church body and the individual Christian has a responsibility to leave the legacy of worship to those who come after us. If you're prioritizing activities outside of the church over the worship of God in the church, don't be surprised when your families fall away from the faith. Don't be surprised when your children don't want to read the Bible. Don't be surprised when they leave the nest, they stop going to church. Now, most of us know that what draws people to the church is the living and glorious grace of God. That he's doing most of the work, but he commands us to prioritize worshiping him above all things. As Joe said to me one time, you've got to put the big stones in the jar first. The priorities go in first, and then fill in the space around it with those things that are a little less important. Renewing revival requires us to reject sin with passion, to submit ourselves, to walk in obedience to God. And I'll tell you, we will experience some glorious grace from our God. Amen? I want to invite the worship team to come on up, and I'll I'll pray for us. Father, there is so much, Lord God, so much to say about the book of Nehemiah, Through these 13 chapters, we have learned about your good hand in calling to build and rebuild the kingdom, how prayerfully seeking you helps us to overcome obstacles as we learn from those who came before us, joyfully serving you where we are needed, and repenting of the sin that prevents the revival you are calling us to. Father, along the way, we have seen your grace, and now I ask you, Lord God, that you would pour it out on us freshly right now, today, this morning, as we lift our praise to you, Father. Because we need you more than ever, Lord. Father, please come and revive our worship one more time and lead us to passionately reject sin as we walk in obedience to our King, experiencing grace every step of the way. Because you laid down your life, Father, help us to worship you with all of our life. I pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.